0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 24 of Mike Check on Sports. I'm Steve Napolitani. As I continue to talk to these great talents from the booth, there are a lot of people who work behind the scenes. Recently, my friend Paul Hemming, known in the business as Chopper, started a podcast of his own called Inside the Truck. He and his partner talk about everything behind the scenes. Be sure to check it out. Chopper is the director for the Carolina Hurricanes, which is the perfect segue for... My next guest has been calling NHL games for over 25 years. He's a multiple winner of the North Carolina Sportscaster of the Year Award, and he is currently the voice of the Carolina Hurricanes and the NHL on NBC. Hey, hey, what do you say? It's John Forslund. John, how are you?
1: I'm good, Nappy. How are you, buddy? I'm doing okay. Yeah.
0: When this whole NHL shut down, it was a little different situation for you, a little unique. And you were quarantined right away because you had stayed right in the hotel room as Rudy Gobert of the NBA. That's right. And, and it created a, a
1: different circumstance. Um, you know, I'll be honest with you, it was a little unnerving. I mean, just not knowing and being part of a big issue at the outset of this uh, breakout where most of the country couldn't get tested, certainly in this state. I didn't have symptoms, so I, I couldn't get tested. So it was a strict quarantine uh, away from the family, uh, a nice basement, so I was able to sequester down there. But you know we, I think at any point in our lives, we would really um, uh, take advantage of a situation like that. but mm. there was so much uncertainty. there's so much going on, and I watch way too much cable news. <laughs> and you know, I just got to thinking about too much. so yeah, I'm not a martyr by any stretch, but it wasn't an easy time. It was great to get back and uh, be allowed back in with my family. Where we've been now for uh, going on ten weeks, I guess, like everyone else. And just hoping that we can figure out a way to get back to the National Hockey League in some form, complete the season, uh, and then get on, most importantly, to the next season and how we do that.
0: So since you have been quarantined, what have you been doing with your time?
1: Not much. I, I learned, I, learned <laughs> I really don't like myself. You know, <laughs> I figured that one out very early. Uh, you know, so some things around the house. Uh, I tried to stay and, um, and I think it helped in somewhat of a, a regimen. I, 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 I'm very structured. I think we all are in this business. You know, your life is kind of dictated by an itinerary, by a schedule, by a, by a body clock. Mm-hmm. And when that goes away, it's like disarray. You feel weird. And that's how I felt. So I, I figured out, I heard some people talking about this, that a, a way to stay kind of mentally sharp is to establish your own personal schedule. Uh, once I did that, With a variety of different things, whether it be, you know, when to have breakfast, when to work out, when to spend some time, you know, uh, consuming some news, but not over the top with that, letting it go, uh, getting to projects around the house, um, figuring out things to do with our family. Uh, I don't think we've ever been together. I've got three children, been Mm -hmm. married almost 34 years. We've never spent this much time together, ever. <laughs> so, um, you know, I always used to kid that, you know, I've been married, you know, say it was 33 years, I'd say I've been around
0: for 13 of those years. So that's why we have a happy marriage. But <laughs> uh, in this
1: business, that's kind of the way it is. Right. But now we've, we've spent a lot of time together and we, to this point, we've been good with it. And we just pray that we can get to the next spot.
0: And you grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts. What was life like yeah. there? Were, were, you a, were sports always a big part of your life?
1: Yeah, huge part. Huge part of my life, every sport, every season. No different than so many kids that grew up in New England, the northeast. Um, where you, you just you live in your neighborhood, you play in your neighborhood, you figure out teams in your neighborhood before you get to high school. Um, you spend all day doing that, that's not an exaggeration. Kids today can't figure that one out. Um but I consider myself very lucky. I grew up in a time where I could leave the house in the morning and nobody worried about where I was. I could come home for dinner. As long as I was on time, I got a chance to eat. Um, but growing up in those years, uh, my, the, the, the light went on for me very early that I might want to do what I'm doing today. So I consider myself very lucky. I think I was eight or nine years old when I, I figured out, you know what, I would really like to do what I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, be a play-by-play person in the National Hockey League. I would really like to do that someday. I had no idea how. Um, And so anyway, that's when it was forged. And um, um, I look back at at those days and and fondly with uh, my parents and the roles they had in that and my dad especially. Mm -hmm. A lot of things he was able to uh, help me with even to the point where through my formative years As a teenager, this this hobby that I used to have, um, he was my color guy. We did games together off the television. I grew up in western Massachusetts, and the Bruins were so hot then with Channel 38 that every game was televised. Hmm. And we lived in an area where with a parabolic antenna and a booster we got at Sears, my dad was able to go up almost nightly and position this thing, and in the summer, position it to see the Red Sox. And anyway, that that was kind of our lives, and boy, those were great years.
0: So, since you knew at a young age, who were some of your broadcasting influences?
1: Well, Fred Cusick, who did the Bruins for over 40 years, was hmm. a, a prime influencer, um, and I use that word because I, I think, in, and I tell young broadcasters this today, be careful not to emulate people because those people are already there uh, and have already established a brand for themselves. Hmm. So there's so many great announcers, especially in those, those golden years for me in the, in the 70s growing up before cable television, right. where you were exposed to local people like Fred, and then on a, on a national basis, a Kirk Gowdy and Keith Jackson um pat summerall i absolutely loved um and that was as i got older and in the college and beyond where pat was doing the the nfl on fox he and john madden were such a great tandem but i enjoyed pat's versatility he was able to get to other sports do them well he was also a guy who was very concise and punctuated moments and was i didn't think he was caught up in himself mm-hmm. so i kind of like that so he was a he was influenced that way, but, but, but so many, so many people were um, a young Marv Albert. I mean, he wrote a book way back when, when he was uh, the Knicks voice, the Rangers voice strictly and uh, read the book cover to cover, uh, you know, so that was, that was, uh, those are all a, a part of the um, inspiration. is probably mm-hmm. a good word. Mm-hmm. And also influence. And I think that that helps you kind of forge who you want to be.
0: And then you end up going to Springfield College. Did you always want to stay close right. to home?
1: No, you know, I looked at various schools. Uh, it's funny, I, I my, my guidance counselor in high school, I went to her my junior year and I told her exactly what I wanted to do.
0: Mm-hmm. And of
1: course, she had well intentions, uh, mm-hmm. but she said, you know, let's look at a backup plan because I don't know how to help you that way. Now, remember, I graduated high school in 1979. So ESPN was founded in 1979 mm. and on very few cable systems. So we were living with four or five channels, networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't a lot of opportunity. Uh, I suppose, you know, she said, that, you know, one school that's strong in this appears to be Syracuse. You know, I looked at it. Um, I looked at a variety of different uh, places too, but she was uh, steering me toward my love of sports, but in education. Mm-hmm. And maybe I wanted to be a high school a PE teacher, and a coach. Uh, and baseball, was a big part of my uh, athletic uh, background. And, you know, so uh, I looked at different places. Springfield was, uh, uh, you know, five miles from my house. I lived on campus all four years, but I got an opportunity to go there. And it was a great school. And it's actually where I took the elective in broadcasting, one mm. course, and a uh, news director from the NBC station in Springfield, he was the teacher. And mm. he's the one that told me, you know, you've got something here, if you ever get a chance, go for it, and he also asked me if I wanted to leave school and become an anchor at one of their uh, sister stations, wow. you know, in the, in the Midwest, yeah, he said, you could, you could go into this, and, uh, you know, you probably pick up some classes at another school part-time, but work for us, um, and, and, but I didn't do it, I, I wanted to get through my senior year, and mm. went to graduate school to Delphi in Garden City, and, um, you know, for sports management, which was just becoming a field too. So right. it's kind of a, a roundabout uh, part of it also.
0: And a lot of people in the communication business, they don't get their master's. What, what made you do that instead of jumping right into it?
1: Well, I knew I wanted to work in sports. Right. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I also met um, a guy by the name of Gary Barrett, who was in the, um, on the athletic uh, uh, department or mm-hmm. with the athletic department at Adelphi. It was also a tennis coach, I believe, if I recall it right. Anyway, he offered me a teaching fellowship at a, at a, uh, a boarding school called St. Paul's in Garden City, hmm. and I could teach there and coach, and I go to school nights at Adelphi, and I had my tuition waiver and all that kind of thing. So I did it. My parents told me that was, you know, that was it. If you're going to go to grad school, figure out a way to do it yourself. So I had to. So I did. And then at the tail end of that program, I had to do an internship. I applied for a variety of different internships around the country, and the one that happened to fall in my lap was this opportunity with the Springfield Indians in the American Hockey League, which is obviously back to my hometown again. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I was going to land there, but I did, and it was a guy named Peter Cooney, who owned the team, who asked me in an interview before he took me on as an intern, do you have any broadcast experience? Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And in my mind, I did, because you gotta, i This snappy i i did so many games growing up (laughs) i felt i had a resume but he never asked me you know who would you work for do you have a tape or anything he just gave me a chance to work with the guy they had was their play-by-play guy who was green also in his first year and i did the games together and that guy moved on to another job and i got the job and i stayed there for seven years and did my thing i was also pr guy group sales and all the things you do in the american league as a part of a four person front office
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and um the next thing i know ended up in hartford in 1991 Mm -hmm. and and that's been
0: it so you, you mentioned a variety of different roles you mentioned seven years did the frustration start to mount at all that you were there for so long or were you just kind of going with the flow enjoying what you're doing and seeing what happens
1: No, I was really frustrated, and uh, I applied for the San Jose job, didn't get it. Dan Rusinowski is still there, was a colleague of mine or a peer of mine in the American League. He was in New Haven. Um, He got the job, and and good for him. He's done a great job with it. Um, Applied for other radio jobs in the NHL. One that comes to mind was with the Devils. Uh, Lou Lamarillo still running the Devils. Dale Arnold was uh, the play-by-play guy left for the New England Patriots at the time. Mm. Uh, Larry Brooks was the VP of Media Relations. Mm-hmm. Um, Dale kind of recommended me because he knew me from the American League for the position. They went to Chris Moore. Uh, he was then the voice of the University of Wisconsin, so I didn't get that. Struck out a couple other opportunities. Uh, Barry Landers and Jake McDonald both were um, Islander guys at the time. Um, we were affiliated with the Islanders. They were great to me. It gave me opportunities. Um, but I was at a crossroads professionally in 1991. Um, I had to make more money. Um, I could not do this anymore. Really? My wife was working full time. She had our benefits. We wanted to start a family. Um, and then this opportunity to join the whalers, not as a, a play by play guide, but possibly to do a little bit of color on radio with Chuck Kate and most mm. importantly, be the PR director, I grabbed it. Mm-hmm. And it was a real job with a real salary and benefits and a 401k and everything else, and I went for it. And I, I kept my hand in broadcasting at the AHL level with their network while I did that. Mm. And then when the ownership changed mm-hmm. in 94, and, the, and Jimmy Rutherford and Peter Carmanis and their group came in, they asked me what I wanted to do, and I told them, and that kind of was my bridge to TV and to get into a play-by-play position by 95. Wow. They gave me a chance to become the voice of the Whalers in 95, and that's it.
0: Did they ask you for any, well, I guess they knew that you were doing other stuff, but did they ask for any tapes or, you know, it's not often a PR. Yeah, really, a, yes, yeah. yes, they saw
1: my, uh, my, they saw my work, and what ended up happening was Sports Channel had the contract Rick Peckham and Jerry Cheevers worked for Sports Channel, not mm. for the team. team had an over-the-air package with uh, WTNH at the time, Channel 8, New Haven, ABC, and it was the 94-95 season. I was supposed to do 20 games over the air. They were going to do the cable package, mm. and what ended up happening was the lockout, the first real lockout right. comes into play. The season gets shaved to forty-eight. The television package goes forty-one sport, forty-seven sports channel, one game at Madison Square Garden. Wow! With Amo Francis as my color guy. Oh, that's the cat, cool. In the cat <laughs> and Whalers Rangers, I did the game. Jimmy had some people in Canada that are in the media business watch it off the satellite. They did. He really liked it. And then the feeling was they wanted to have their own guy, um, and so play-by-play play and color, so they made a difficult decision. Rick went on to a great career in Tampa. Thank God for that. It mm-hmm. uh, wasn't an easy spot for me. Uh, Jerry kind of went into semi-retirement, but the feeling was that the Whalers wanted a little bit more representation and maybe a different look to their broadcasts, and so it was myself and Daryl Ray. Mm-hmm. Daryl Ray and I did the games in 95 and then Razor took the job with the Dallas Stars the following season.
0: What do you remember from that first game? Was it everything you thought it'd be?
1: It was unbelievable walking into the garden with the cat. Right. That's what I remember the most. I, the game, um, did you the take game, the ramp? I don't remember. What's that?
0: Did you take the ramp?
1: We took the ramp, and then we were able to walk in the building and get around the concourse a little bit. you wanted to take a walk uh-huh. before the game, and we did. And the only thing I can tell you, and you can relate to this, and I know all your listeners in that area will, will – we bang on with this. I mean, it's like walking around with, with the king, like Elvis Presley. It was mm-hmm. unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the love, the people, they still do, you know, uh, for him. And just the fact that we did the game together, it was, it was a great experience. We're mm-hmm. supposed to do more. He was supposed to be the guy. He was, at the end of his uh, contract, you know, from being the GM and the president, they mm-hmm. really, uh, it was Brian Burke who had him do a little bit of scouting for us. And he was always. You know, he wanted to do something. And then Jimmy said, you know what? How about on this television package, the over-the-air package, you do color with Johnny? And mm. he was like, yeah, I'll go for that. That's cool. <laughs> and so he did. And, uh, but we did one game together, and that was it. But it was a, it was a dream come true. Oh, uh, awesome. Because I grew up, you know, watching those rivalry games with the Bruins and him
0: being the coach and all that. Mm-hmm. So next, then he became, you know, the, the guy that really
1: turned the Whalers around in the late 80s. So it was, it was special.
0: And then in 96, 97, the last season in Hartford, was there any hesitation on your part to not join the team in Carolina or to join the team in Carolina? Sorry.
1: Yeah, there was, I had a year left on my contract Mm -hmm. and we'll get to the name Fred Cusick again Mm. because there was an article in the Boston Herald and they asked Fred if he, when he was retiring after 43 years, I think it was, um, You know, if you had someone to uh, as a successor, you know, is there anybody in the league? And he recommended me, and I didn't know Fred very well. As a matter of fact, Fred was uh, well-established. I was kind of intimidated by him because of who he was when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. As a PR guy, I said hello to him, but that was it. I didn't know him, and then when I started to do games, He didn't have much to do with any of us. He would just show up, do the games, and go home. Hmm. Um, And he was he and Derek Sanderson for Nesson at the time. Anyway, he said, this John Forsman with the Whalers is somebody I would really like to see get it. And so they called me, and they brought me in for an audition. And in that summer, before we decided to come to Carolina, I auditioned along with uh, Dave Shea, who ended up getting the gig, Hmm. and Sean McDonough. Hmm. who I think just outpriced himself. He was a hot commodity with the Red Sox and CBS. And he was also doing some college hockey and the Bruins for TV 38. And then there was me. And a real good interview process, real good audition. Um, And then I came down in August of 97 and met with Jim Rutherford. And before we got to the next steps with uh, the Bruins or Channel 38 or Nesson, because it was 38, it wasn't mm-hmm. was Netson. Channel- there's two separate packages. Um, Jimmy said to me, would you please, you know, come to come to Raleigh. Now, one year left, we'll get to a new contract, but come to Raleigh because, you know, if anything, maybe, you, you know, he you put a little heat on it. I think you owe me something, and, and mm-hmm. I do. I owe everything to a few people. Peter's one, Jim Rutherford's another, you know, my career. Um, and certainly everything that happened here, I owe to Jimmy Rutherford. And so I said, I went home, uh, we we're up at a place in Maine and I told my wife, you know, I think we're going to go to Raleigh. We have to, here's why. And she said, okay, let's go for it. Wow. Best decision we ever made. And then mm. we came and went through the growing pains, but it's been a remarkable run here.
0: And do you remember that last game in Hartford? Like take us back in the building. What were the emotions of that?
1: Yeah, I remember everything about it. I remember the drive in the day of the game. It was a one 30 game on a Sunday afternoon, uh, You know, it's kind of partly cloudy, and this is not an exaggeration. As I approached the city off I-91 coming south, I was living in Springfield at the time, um, I could see like a a dark cloud, believe it or not, over the Sheridan Hotel, over the Hartford Civic Center. Uh, I remember that distinctly, and then, you know, going in and then uh, recognizing all the faces. I still see the security guards, the arena workers, Mm. concessions people, Remember, I was in administration at one point, too, so I worked hand-in-hand hand with all these people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so I knew them, and, and, and you knew we were just ripping their hearts out. I understood why. I understood why the team was moving, um, and, but it's really a, a difficult thing to go through, and then I had to suck it up and understand that I had to become as professional as possible and not let the emotions of the day take me someplace I didn't want to go as a broadcast. Mm. So, you know, how do you do the game properly? And as I look back, and it was maybe five years ago, I'd say, someone sent me the YouTube of the entire game. Oh, wow. um, and I got a chance to, I did not watch any of it uh, because I felt, you know, that badly about the whole thing until maybe five years ago. Wow. And I watched it from start to finish, and I was very, very proud of the open and the close. A game broadcast is fine. game mm-hmm. broadcast is what it should be. But how I came on the air that day and how I closed the game with my partner at the time, Billy Gardner, um, that was really important because it was hard to fight off emotions, especially at the end. I had to throw it to a, um, a a video, a rollout piece, and I had to say something that made sense without sounding syrupy,
0: without sounding like I was excited about moving. You right. didn't want
1: to do that.
0: Right.
1: You didn't, you it's didn't almost like a to... double-edged
0: sword, you know, you don't.
1: Yeah, anything you said could be awful. Mm-hmm. And so you had to be very careful and you had to be professional. And I didn't want to get choked up. I did when I got it, when I was, when I threw to the piece, and I took my, you know, we got the clear and we were done. I put the mic down and put my IFB out. I broke down. I mean, that's when I, that's when I let, I let loose um, because it was that emotional to go through that. And then saying goodbye to everybody on the way out and empty feeling going home that night just an empty feeling. And we weren't a hundred percent sure where we were going yet. Um, we didn't know it was going to be Raleigh. It wasn't determined. We knew mm-hmm. we were leaving, um, but it wasn't a hundred percent sure we were, we are caught in here. Or how? And uh, very unsettling.
0: Wow. And then you're in Carolina, not exactly known as a hockey hotbed. Did you, right. when you, when you guys first got there, did you felt feel well received?
1: No, no. In some ways, yes. The people, you know, Some people were very excited for us. Some people had no idea what it was, why we're even here. So it wasn't like an expansion team.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: An expansion team, there's almost a year maybe. Now we see with Vegas and Seattle, like a two-year build-up before you get there. And there's also a benchmark you have to hit in terms of season tickets sold. Mm so that You have that fan base when you hit the ground and you have a full building when you hit the ground. Um, We moved in four months. It was done in, in a very hasty way because the owner was very upset with the state government, the local government, in Hartford, and Mr. Carmanis wanted to pull out, and he was going to die trying, and he was going to prove it to everybody they could make it work. Well, that was hard on everybody else in charge of logistics. Hmm. So when we came here and played in Greensboro, which is a seventy-mile drive from Raleigh, seventy-minute drive from Raleigh. Hmm without traffic, we played every home game there, and we lived in Raleigh. It was very difficult. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the crowds were light, and you're in the south, way different time than it is today, mm-hmm. before the big migration of people, before the buildup of these areas now, like Charlotte and Raleigh, which are beautiful thriving areas now. Um, but it was really uh, kind of going to Mayberry, for lack of a better expression. Mm-hmm. And, and you had that that uh, stereotype attached to you Mm. and your credibility professionally, I think took a hit. Mm. Remember in those years, no center ice package, unless you had a satellite dish, you were in a black hole. I I firmly believe no one saw me for, except for Larry Christensen at ESPN, who um, hired me when I was still in Hartford to do some uh, playoff work for them and some, some b games in the regular season and stuff like that. Um, it kept my hand in that like a national footprint, mm-hmm. but I think I went into a black hole for about five years wow. where we didn't do a ton of television here. No one paid attention. Every time teams came in, the original six teams, I mean, it was obvious they were looking their noses down at us. Why wouldn't you? Right. Um, and the team had to build credibility and starting in, a little bit in 99, but certainly in at the uh, once we got to the 02 season and that team went on that incredible run to the Stanley Cup final, the Canes finally were noticed and it started to build. Mm-hmm. The draft came in 04, and they canceled the season. Then the year after that, they won the Stanley Cup and then went back to the conference final in 09. Then they had a decade of nothing. So um, it's been feast or
0: famine that way, but I think. The Canes earned some credibility over time here. I mean, that had to have been difficult for you night in and night out to still call the game like you should when you know not many people are watching.
1: It was hard. And then you had to figure out are you educating? Are you, who's watching? Who's your audience? Are you, are you, um, teaching them about hockey?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Are you going to offend some people because they moved here from New York? either a Ranger fan or a Saber fan. We had a lot of Buffalo people here at the time in the tech mm-hmm. business for some reason, um, you know. And they they don't want to turn on the TV and be explained, you know, why the blue line blue. You know they, they they want to they want to watch the game. Mm-hmm. So we had to walk a line that way, and I think we did a good job with it. Do a ton of community work, you know, mm-hmm. really before all of this stuff. Really before the the internet became a really big thing, and before you could you know market like we do today, you don't even really have to. Go anywhere today because of social media teams have a way to get their brand out there far easier than we did in those years you had to actually go to civic clubs and chambers of commerce and rotary meetings and all these things to talk about hockey and ask the people and you didn't want to hear what you had to say or couldn't figure out you know who you were right. and you had to relate to everybody and then we found over time that some of our greatest fans We're not the transplants. We're not the people that knew about hockey before they got here, but the people who were turned on by it. Mm. And to this day, some of our great season ticket holders are people that grew up here and didn't know anything about the NHL until the Canes came, and then they were able to see the game in person, and and they love it, and they're knowledgeable now. So that's been very uh, rewarding to be part of that.
0: Yeah, and you talked about O two and O six. I worked the final in O six in the atmosphere walking around that area in that parking lot before Stanley Cup final game against Edmonton. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And I never really thought you'd was. see that down there.
1: No, no. And and you know what? And then over time what you would start to see is like it would cheer at the right time. It
0: would cheer if the team went out and had a good for checking shift, Mm -hmm. you know, they became knowledgeable uh, about the game.
1: It wasn't just the obvious stuff. So that 06 year, as you recall between the two markets, Edmonton and Raleigh, it was very special. And we did some classic rollbacks here because of the pandemic uh, on Fox and got a chance to see some of these games again. And it was absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. The, the atmosphere and, uh, Mm -hmm. And, and still, it was rekindled last season when the game did it again. And after 10 years, got back. And uh, the, the building, as you know, is, 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 first of all, the weather's ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the setup is perfect for tailgating. Uh, so you have that football mentality with the fans. They, they love tailgating. And they just turned it right into a hockey, um, part of the hockey fabric here. So um, by the time they get in for the game, they're loaded for bear. They're excited, uh, and the building is constructed the way it is with kind of a low ceiling. That there's a there's a din that's really second to none. So it's a it's a great place, you know, a great place uh, for the game. And like I said in a previous answer, it's 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 rewarding to be part of that.
0: Right, and you talk about last year they had the storm surges. That had to be a little something different for everybody. But it seemed like. You know, there was a lot of criticism. Some people liked it. Some people didn't like it. But it was a celebration amongst the fans and the players like you haven't really seen in most sports.
1: And it was needed because it was so dead here for 10 years. And, you know, I would I would challenge any market. Maybe the only one would be Toronto because I think we've seen attrition in Ottawa and Edmonton, mm-hmm. um, even in Montreal a little bit. Um, You know, if you, you go 10 years, Chicago for sure. You, you go 10 years without a playoff appearance, you're going to lose people. Mm-hmm. And in markets where there's good weather, there's a rich college basketball and football tradition, and there's, there's three major programs, you know, just college basketball within 30 miles, um, you're going to lose the handle on your market. And so the Canes did. And then when that surge came out of nowhere, the players knew they were going to do it. Um, Williams, Justin Williams came up with the idea, mm. passed it through the coach. Rod Brendan Moore said, okay, he took it up the flagpole, and beyond, the new owner, who's, who's a maverick guy, was all for it. And it was after a wild win against the Rangers, the third game of the season, the yeah. uh, season before last, that they did it for the first time. And uh, I remember the first surge, and I said, because I didn't know it was coming, that this is what this will tell you something about this group, and so that is all it really was. And then it wasn't to show up the other side; it was really about them, and then their connection to the fans, and the fans bought in, which they would in most markets, I think, mm-hmm. even in the in I think the pundits in, in conventional uh, markets for hockey or media people who are traditionalists have taken offense to it I understand why I respect it I've been in this business for over 30 years I get it um I'm a very good friend of of Don Cherry's and at the time when he really took it to task I said I don't don't disrespect grapes at all for what he said but I'm here and I know what this is about and it depends on how you want to look at life and Mm -hmm. I try to look at it to have the most fun possible. Absolutely. So this is a good thing because we're all smiling. So we <laughs> we can't take it too seriously. And then it took on a whole different life of its own with the jerks. Oh, yeah. And the Evander Holyfield and the basketball one and uh, all these different themes the guys came up with. Now, adding the lighting and, the, you know, the images on the ice, it, it's become really staged now. Um, but it's in its... In its rawest form, it was just the the players figuring out what they're going to do if they won the game, mm. and in the fans just loving every second of it. And then I, I, we did it in the first season. We didn't want. I, I, they asked me if I wanted to know ahead of time, and I said no. I want to be surprised. So Tripp and I, um, every storm surge, mm. have been taken by surprise. We have no idea what's coming next. Mm. Um, in some situations, now in the second year, our producer Jimmy Malia knows because there's cameras that have to be in the right spot right. Uh, so nobody gets hurt and the lighting. So uh, when they started, if, so we don't sound like we're idiots, he might say, you know, it's a basketball theme tonight. I'm right. uh, like, okay, because it's March Madness. Okay, it's a basketball theme, And then I'll walk, walk through it and we'll enjoy it and that's it. So it is what it is. It's supposed to be fun. Uh, it's a big part of their identity.
0: Yeah. I do remember that first game against the Rangers and all of a sudden we're like, what are they doing? That's <laughs> we went yeah. to commercial. Yeah. Uh, it was crazy, yeah. Uh, for years, you've also worked for national networks like ESPN and NBC. What makes those day, games different from calling Kane's games on a nightly basis? And ha- how do you approach them? I approach them the
1: same way. So I don't get, you know, from a style standpoint, you know, off center. So I, I try to do uh, a, a local game stylistically very, very similar to a national game. Um, I I know to the local market, a couple more catchphrases work, a little more sauce for the Canes obviously works. Um, You you have to do that. That's your audience. You you have to share in their excitement. You Mm -hmm. have to build brand. I'm a firm believer in fairness, as objective, I hope, as possible, on a local broadcast without demoralizing the other side, without being an over-the-top homer. I'm not that, um, never have been, don't want to be, um, and so that's how. But I think the key is to be able to do both. Um, many times on consecutive nights, you're as a play caller, you can't change too much because then you'll get caught. Hmm. And so when I do go to a national game, my energy isn't fabricated. Um, I get excited on any play around the net because I remember the great Dan Kelly. You talk about people that influence you. Hmm. Just before he passed away, uh, Jimmy Roberts was our coach in Springfield in the American League. And he was a friend of Dan's. And I got a chance to talk to Dan. and Dan told me, never sell a goal down no matter what. Never sell a save down no matter what. Even if it's the other side. Because that's a great moment. And so, when the Canes score, it's it's the same call, and then I take it to another place. Mm-hmm. You know, when say the Canes are playing the Rangers, the Rangers Mika Zibanejad gets a beautiful pass from Panarin, and it's a highlight goal. I'm calling it that way. Um, I don't just you know sound dejected because the Rangers scored. My point is, if I'm doing a national game involving the Rangers and the Bruins on the next night. How do you change so much without your habits becoming part of your presentation and it crippling the broadcast? Mm. So what I try to do is mm. stay true to the the style I believe is a good hockey call and do it. And in terms of preparation and and my my uh, routine, get ready for the game. It's all the same. Mm. And you know, obviously, it's a twelve month cycle now, and I don't let it go. And I have to pay attention to not just my own team but every team in the league because at some point with my schedule, thank God, the way it's been the last couple of years, I've had so much work that I'm I'm doing virtually every team in the league and sometimes a repetitive nature. So you gotta be you gotta be able to tell uh, the baseline story of the Dallas Stars, not as well as your own team, but you have to have more knowledge than going there in the morning of the game and trying to figure out, you know, what's their story, what's happening. You know, mm-hmm. you have to stay with it. Yeah. Support.
0: We had to talk about a couple of your famous calls and where they came from. First of all, that's hockey, baby. That one nappy
1: came out of nowhere, um, and and they all do. There's only one that I thought about, and so that hockey baby just came out. I like the way it sounded. Um, it I love the
0: way it sounds.
1: It's only reserved for big goal, highlight goals. Mm-hmm. So, when, if I get excited about a Tic-tac-toe play, uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 an end rush, uh, a a fancy play in tight, great, you know, anything like that that depicts our sport, that's what it's supposed to be. So Mm -hmm. that that one just came out by accident. And
0: then the hey, hey, what do you say?
1: Yeah, so that one goes to my dad. So my dad um, used to say that all the time when he would meet people, you know, hey, hey, what do you say? He said it. On the Hmm. ball field, he used to coach us when we were in Little League and that. Um, So anyway, he passed away in 1985 in January, early January 1985, Hmm. on the day I received my first paycheck. wow! I was an intern, and they hired me around Christmas. And two weeks after Christmas, he passed away
0: Hmm.
1: on January 12th, 85. And I got a paycheck with a team logo on it. Hmm. I was so proud of it. And he died suddenly in his sleep. And anyway, it was after that into the next season on buses where I was thinking, and I was really at a tough spot because he was my best friend and I had a tough time. I was 22, had a tough time dealing with that. Yeah, but I, was, I, I wanted to pay off his memory. So I decided to use the call on a goal that night. And then a month oh. later, I decided, you know what, I'm going to use it on the clinching goal of a game. And I did. And then as I got a couple of years into it, I was using it on goals, and this is in the American League, mm-hmm. um, when I thought the game was over in my mind. And so I started doing it in the 89-90 season, they won the Calder Cup. The 90-91 season, they won the Calder Cup. One of those two years, I don't recall, but a writer wanted to do a story about it. Mm. So finally, I could tell my story as to why. I never told anybody unless they asked me. And then over time, I was able to incorporate it at the whalers and then take it with me to the hurricanes. And there've been people who haven't liked it, who think it's hokey and trite and all this. And I just listen to the criticism and I don't even respond to it because it's for my dad. It's just about my father. That's it. But it's really been a thing that's now attached to me and I love it. And so when I think the game is over, I say it. And only then if it's a close game, I won't use it unless it's the obvious overtime winner right mm-hmm. but um and it's on my local games i don't really use it at all nationally because it would it would show some favoritism so we haven't got that far yet
0: well that's great that's great and you know broadcasting hockey has changed over the years now a lot of the time your broadcast partner is no longer beside you he's between the benches as a play-by-play guy what's the approach with that is that a lot harder for you
1: it is it's really a um Testament to the guys who do it and do it well. The color guys that are able to get down there in the scramble and see the game, and uh, and also have the awareness of what it's like to be either behind the bench at one point in their lives or on the bench at one point in their lives. Someplace I've never been. So to me, for a viewer, that's great stuff. And I remember when you know they decided to do this. Sam flood came up with the idea. And it, it, it was almost like, okay, we're finally getting into the pits, right, of, of, of uh, NASCAR, race driving. We're finally getting into uh, the, the pits of hockey, um, being down there in the action, what's it's going to be like. And I think the mechanics of it, the only way you have to do it is just be able to kind of, in a second nature form, be able to kind of relate back and forth with, with my partner, um, so that we don't step on each other. Mm-hmm. And when I work with Joe Micheletti, who I think is fabulous and, you uh, might have a different opinion, but <laughs> I think he's fabulous. And, uh, you know, Joe's able to do a great up top and he can also go down there between the benches and, and, and do what he does and jump in at the right time without seeing your partner. So when I take a breath instinctively, he jumps in. And all you have to do with that, and this is really the only pitfall, in order not to step on each other as a play caller, I'll let the game breathe. And if if my partner has something to say, jump. And if he doesn't, don't. And then we actually have some nice, quiet, dead air with ice effects, which is soothing, I think, and mm-hmm. a nice listen. And then you go again. And so that's the only thing. You just don't want to step on each other and keep apologizing. You know, Sorry, John. Sorry, Joe. You don't want to get through a whole broadcast of listening to that. And the way Kenny does it, doc uh hopefully i'm in that group um and all the guys that are uh, you know in in that area Pierre mcguire joe and and brian boucher has really come a long way with it it's an art form it really is but i I hope it works for the people at home that's the objective that they're getting a feel for what it's like to be in the game and uh that's the only way to do it
0: and you were once again named north carolina sportscaster of the year What, what do those honors mean to you
1: well, any a, a peer group is important in any and any type of work, and that's what this one is all about. So the members vote, and um, you know, to get that distinction, uh, the first year was was unbelievable, um, and then I didn't expect it the second year, and that was uh, even more humbling. So that's what it's all about. I mean, it's when people do what you do in different forms but appreciate your work and want to give you that type of an honor. It means more than anything that can come your way. So, um, that, that's what it means. And Mm -hmm. there's a rich history here too. So there's another facet to this. It's being a hockey announcer in North Carolina. So if that gets back to the beginning of when we first came here, Mm -hmm. and if you were to tell me in 97, and Chuck Caton won this award too, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the great radio voice for many years, the hurricanes and whalers, um, that hockey people would be on the same level as the great basketball voices here and the football voices in this college-rich state, then that would be something. And so, yeah, Woody Durham, longtime voice of the uh, North Carolina Tar Heels, Bob Harris, the longtime voice of the Duke Blue Devils—you know, these are all legendary guys here who have won this award on numerous occasions, and to be in that same class is is flattering.
0: When you look back, do you have a favorite game or a call that you've done?
1: Oh, boy. No, you know, um, it's a great question. And um, I think, you know, whenever I'm asked that, it's really hard to put, you know, the great moments because the greatest moment was just being part of the radio broadcast in 2006 as a color guy for Chuck Kate, mm. game seven for the Stanley Cup. I didn't call it. So I didn't do my job. But it was part of it, and it was a great moment for the team. So that's a great moment. But was it a great moment for me as a play-by-play announcer? Not really. There's been other things. There was the centennial outdoor game, Toronto-Detroit, hmm. 2017 uh, at the uh, soccer stadium uh, in, uh, in Toronto. Right. And that was an unbelievable New Year's Day game, uh, my only outdoor game I've ever been to, uh, obviously the only one I've ever called experience, one of the best. Um, every playoff game I've done, I kind of put it on equal footing because um, I'm, I'm not being you know, cavalier about this. I, I, I get excited about every playoff game I've ever done, uh, whether it be in the first round, second round, third round. Um, I haven't called a Stanley Cup final game yet. Um, maybe someday I will. If that, that happens, terrific. Um, the David Ayers game this year, this, the emergency backup goalie, um, that was something totally different. Would that be a highlight of my broadcasting career? Absolutely, when this is over. Absolutely. But that was a regular season game with an unbelievable story that nobody saw coming that became part of hockey history and maybe sports history, hmm. when you think about it. Um, so that's a special one. First game ever in North Carolina. First game in the now PNC Arena in 99. Um, all those things. I uh, was on the ice as a uh, uh, the, the skills competition host in 2011 that's the all-star game Mm. here um that was remarkable that was something totally different uh called the game the all-star game on radio the following day did the national call for westwood one that's a highlight so the long-winded answer is that these are all kind of on the same level Mm. it's hard to pick out one because there's a variety of different circumstances that go in each one
0: well john i look forward to the moment when i'm logging on twitter and i see that famous photo that you post on game days of your notepad, your chart, your headset and your glasses resting, ready to call a game. And, and you, and you know, a game is coming up and uh, hopefully we get back to that point sooner than later. And, and we get to hear that great voice again and giving it, a, Hey, Hey, what do you say? And that's hockey baby or on NBC calling a game. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time and chatting with uh, me today.
1: Thanks so much. Nappy, And again, as I said at the top, great to hear your voice. Be well, my friend. I, I can't wait to see you again. That's the bad part about this, isn't it? That we've been oh. really detached in so many different ways, and hopefully someday we, we might be distanced, but I'm never using this social distancing word or words together. I'm right. um, moving forward after this.
0: Yeah. All right, John. Thank you very much. Take care, buddy. That's John Forslan, baby. Great catching up with one of the best hockey play-by-play voices in the game. What a journey from Hartford to Raleigh. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mike Check on Sports. Take care. Brush your hair.